Hey, Coiners. It's Wednesday, January 6th. It is 7 p.m. and it has been a day. Things got really, really weird and violent in our United States Capitol. And the team actually talked about maybe postponing by one day our weekly episode. And we decided not to do that, but we decided to do this. So just wanted to check in and sort of acknowledge where we are, which is it ain't great. Just let's all be careful out there. term coined in the late 1950s to describe the advertising executives of Madison Avenue. They coined it. Students for a Democratic Society. That's a hell of a focus group. Welcome to They Coined It. <laughs> Who dat? New Mike here, folks. New Mike, new Dan. <laughs> so, I used to work for Friendly's Ice Cream. I'll have a fripple. What is it called? A ripple or a fripple? A fribble. A fribble. <laughs> it's like a food that doesn't exist. Well, in the no, universe. it's it's not just a food that doesn't exist. So the fribble, if you don't know what a fribble is, <sighs> don't know what a fribble it's is. the friendlies extra thick shake because because the traditional milkshake in the world, a milkshake is a thin thing with McDonald's with the world of shakes, they've gotten thicker and thicker. All right. Friendlies had a traditional milkshake, which was thinner, which is your ice cream, your syrup, and your milk. Whipped up. Worked for me for, for all my years. A fribble is uh, a thicker drink, and it is flavored only with syrup. And the the fribble mix is what it was called. And, it, you know, you scooped it like ice cream, but it was basically flavorless ice milk. It was just like this gop, this goo, this goop, this stuff. And you, but I think it got like three scoops instead of two or whatever it was. But none of that is why I brought it up. I was going to say, this is already the best podcast episode we've ever done. <laughs> the history of the fribble. And the, of the fribble. <laughs> no, I bring it up because, and I don't have the dates on this, but Friendly's was friendly. Friendly ice cream. Correct. And then everybody freaking called it Friendly's. And eventually right. they became Friendly's. Right. I, I mean, I was... <laughs> I was that person who was like, it's friendly ice cream. Friendly, friendly. <laughs> and I think wow. the last I heard. Um, they still talk about that <laughs> where, where you used to work. That lip girl. <laughs> correcting every, correcting all the customers when they'd walk in. That was good. Uh, She's our number one waitress. That sounds accurate. <laughs> <laughs> remember that? Remember, Remember that mouthy? <laughs> oh, they remember. Anybody, anybody, anybody from those days remembers me. Yeah, anyway, <laughs> I remember at uh, at some point it changed over, and I didn't notice it changed over. Like it just had changed over. And then the, what I had heard is there's still like one. It was a long time ago. I don't know if it's still there. There's maybe one up in Massachusetts where it comes from, but there might be there might be a sign somewhere like the old sign that still says friendly. And the lawsuit is pending. I yeah. Guess. <laughs> so, obviously, Martinson's, Martinson. Oh, there we go. Was that not obvious? No. Bring it back home. Not for me, but our audience is much sharper than I am. That is why it came to mind. Martinson and uh, Martinson's is the point. Mart- <laughs> swear to God, that was the, that was the. <clears throat> I wish I could remember the jingle. The jingle really was good. That was a good jingle. I mean, sorry, it's a song. It's a song. But- it's a whole mood. <laughs> it's a whole mood. <laughs> Current mood. But- 
I'm making their point for them. But um, that was a good ditty that they produced. Martin Sun, Martin Sun. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> it sounded like the old Spider-Man right there. I know, didn't it? That was it. That was a great sort of, it's not quite a plot point, but a great little client instance for the show. You know, it was, I think Martinson is a real brand, right? Am I correct? Oh, absolutely. That? Okay. Is it national? Was it as big as like Maxwell House and all that? I don't know what's national because I never left the East Coast. Oh, yeah. You're the Malamars girl. You don't know, you know, you know how any of that works. But I, I loved that instance of using the coffee account to dive into the generation stuff. Which they seeded in the first episode of the season. Yeah, it's a callback. Yeah, he didn't want Freddie doing it. Exactly. We don't want Freddie doing Mar- doing coffee. And I love that that over the last 20 years, coffee again had to be like reinvented and reintroduced <laughs> via Starbucks. And Dunkin' is not even Dunkin' Donuts because they sell so much goddamn coffee. Like it's coffee is a thing all over again. Something Matthew Weiner said maybe to me about coffee. You used to drink coffee with your lunch. You'd go to the luncheonette. You'd go to the, what, what were those, uh, those cafeteria things in the, in the city also? The um, Automat. Exactly. Horn and Hard Art. Which does not feel like a place you eat food. At a place called the Automat. Right. Yet, that's what it was. <laughs> I'm fascinated with that, but I've never seen one. You know, like the martinis, and I think we've touched on this, how those four martini lunches, they were smaller martinis. Mm-hmm. Coffee was also, you know, we all know what an old-timey coffee cup looks yeah. like, a cup and a saucer. You didn't drink the vat that I have with me <laughs> My, right now. <laughs> the, the, the 40-ouncer that you get at the <laughs> at the 7-Eleven. Yep. Marks and coffee. Martinson's. They changed it. Change it back. The Gold Violin. See, we're switching it all up today, yeah. Written by Jane Anderson and Andre and Maria Jacquematon. Well done. Thank you. Directed by Andrew Bernstein. The original air date is September 7th, 2008. And it takes place uh, over four days, Thursday through Monday, beginning somewhere between... June 21st and July 19th, 1962. And I'm going to read, we always get this piece from the blog, if you want to like peek behind the curtain here. And I've mentioned before this, my sister always did this part of the research, figured out the like when the hell it took place. And she actually included all these notes of her thinking, which was, which was kind of cool. So it, here's exactly what it says. Uh, It takes place somewhere beginning uh, June 21st and July 19th, 1962. Probably closer to July 19th. The Port Huron Statement, read from by Smitty, was released June 15th, 1962. The next episode begins around July 21st and seems to follow this one very closely. So that's just a little window into how that all gets put together. Yeah. This episode, I paused. So I'm watching, I'm just watching them on IMDb TV where the terrible commercials are. Just, it's just easier for me than digging out a DVD. And so at the first commercial break, I guess we're about 10 minutes in. And I was like, what? I just was at that moment sort of paused and went that this was exhilarating. This, this was an exhilarating opening 10 minutes or I I couldn't, I didn't have a timestamp. So, you know, and that makes sense. It's, it's now episode seven of the season. We are, we are at a different pace. So much happened. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in the opening and there, there's just there's a lot to this this was a 
an incredible episode. Incredible episode. Bit of a sleeper, right? It doesn't, it's not one of the ones that stands out when you look at the season or you look at the entire series. Yet, just so much great stuff. The the scene of them walking into Bert Cooper's office mm. is <laughs> it's so delightful because we don't know who Jane is. And we see her being the the uh, adventurous one among all these scared guys. Why don't you just go look at it? I'm sorry, Jane, but you just don't walk into his office like that. But he's gone for the day. That doesn't matter. Miss Blankenship won't mind. <sighs> I'm going to go up and see it. And it's hard to not see the Jane Siegel character that we don't know very much about at this point as anything other than... A gaslighting shit starter? Well, we get to... That That happens <laughs> later. We're not there yet. Okay. I might have feelings. Yeah. But it's kind of like... I mean, we've all seen... There's like the hot girl syndrome. I, I can get away with more than you can. Let's just go in the office. What are, you know, what are they going to do to us? Well, what are they going to do to you is different than what they're going to do to us. We don't... We don't we, we, we don't look like you, Jane. The rest of the world doesn't look like you. Yeah. And so the rest of the world acts differently, period. And, that, they're, 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 and that's never said, but any sentient human being watching the, this, this episode and that scene in particular feels a dose of that kind of like, oh, it's the, 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 um, the hot chick who likes to act like she doesn't know she's hot and kind of does these sort of wacky things and lets everybody else deal with them. That's kind of what this is, um, although it's never stated. That, that's my interpretation, and it's fun to interpret the scene that way. Yes, if it ended with her second-to-last conversation with Joan. If that was the end. If, if her getting fired was the end. Right. What's interesting about everything you just said is that's not how it played out. No, not at all. No, it's, I said it's fun to read right. it that way. Right, except it exactly is how it played out. It actually is exactly how it played out. Well, an element of that, of her going to Roger and Roger treating her differently because of who she is, how she looks. Under Joan's watchful eye, and my God, she's good. I mean, but I mean as a, as an investigator. <laughs> <laughs> no, right. And as a, you know, my girls don't do that. It was... Yeah, you're going to get caught by, by the Queen Bee. Right? You're going to get caught by Joan, and she... And she she found out it, it was interesting because you only got bits and pieces in 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 the text of what Joan. Yeah, you didn't see the full investigation. You didn't see it. You don't know how it started, and you and you don't know ever. But you know that she knows, and I don't think she would have fired Jane for participating. No, she no. found out that Joan that Jane <laughs> names that Jane was the instigator, and that is unacceptable. And one one thing of note: Jane was an excellent secretary to Don Draper. That's right. She was. She had all the chops. Right? Yeah, she was hundred percent. She had all the discretion. She had all the all the thoroughness. She really was good at her job. But but and Joan was and Joan was right to fire her. Yeah, I I don't see her as getting fired for instigating because I mean let's face it you know one, four seconds with Harry Crane and you know you're getting the full story, so we don't have to guess at how Joan came up with this this tidbit. But I don't think it was the instigating. I think it was lying. So, so Joan had the goods on Jane, and if Jane had copped to it and just said, yeah, I know, I was having some fun, I probably shouldn't have done it. Won't happen again, Joan. I think she keeps her job. Maybe, I don't know. Because I, I think Joan respects the, 
the caper, right? I, I don't think she's against that. I think she's against the, like you said, the gaslighting. No, I disagree. I disagree. Okay. I think everything. Because Joan didn't go over there to fire her. She went there to reprimand her. Maybe. Uh, we don't know. Can we have this conversation elsewhere? May, I mean, maybe. You, I, you might be right. It might have, yes. It might have, it might have been affected by how she That's how I responded. I think she was open to firing. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Well, I, th- I think you go, in, you go in saying, I need to accomplish this, and I'm going to see how she reacts. And, you know, I, I'm prepared to do, to go farther. But All I know is, I'm just looking at it from Joan's eyes. And again, Joan's ethic of these girls behave a particular way because they are a reflection of me and my standards for this office. And you are, be- you. I mean, I know, I know this as a, having been a retail manager, it was one of the things you always considered when with your employees. They are you. You are the company. They are you. Jane is Joan. And if Joan had blessed such a move, if Bert Cooper had found out that they had all come sneaking in, Joan was not risking that behavior. So uh, you're, you're right. She might not have been set on firing her in the moment, but it was a fireable offense. In, in Joan's eyes, and the lying definitely made it exacerbated it. So I don't, I don't know, I don't know the, I don't know the full plan, but but it wasn't. Jane didn't help herself. Jane didn't help herself, except she did. Well, that was after when she needed to help herself. <laughs> she realized that this was this was an existential moment. I got to tell you, I'm very rest of the exhilarating episode aside, and we'll get to everything else. I was shook by Jane. And I'm not sure what what the purpose of writing such a, a manipulative, gaslighting. Her lies were so fast. Like, I don't get it. Like, I, I know there's people like that, certainly in the world. I'm, I don't understand. I don't really understand. I don't understand it. I don't understand why Jane, you know, Jane at the beginning of the episode, sort of unaffected, Right, like this this beautiful, everybody's staring at her. She's not having it. She's not encouraging Roger Sterling. She's not encouraging any of these guys. I mean, she dresses how she dresses, but is- Well, she's already been reprimanded for her dress. For her dress. Right. We got to hear Joan say decolletage, which was a great moment. Which was a great moment in the show. <laughs> but, but, you know, that could be a youth thing. You know, we have the youth theme. Right, but, so- she's, but she's been set up as a- I wouldn't say an outright tease because I don't think she's an outright tease, but having this this thread of playing off people's perception of her because she's clear she was playing to the cheap seats with with her with her outfit, right? And then in the in the first part of the of this episode, you know, she's ignoring all the guys. Ken's trying to take her to a ball game, or you know, what are you doing? And she's like, are you "Hungry? Nope. Good night." <laughs> you know, really kind of not not fussing with anybody. So, so you think that she's above it? Above it, yes. I don't see her as a tease, and I don't see her as being intentionally provocative. She's a pretty woman who's dressing slightly more modern and looser. And I don't mean looser, slutty looser. I no, mean looser, I, no, uh, less casual, less casual. right, less buttoned. And and for that, she she Joan sees her as how Joan sees her, but Joan is a little old fashioned in her views and in, and in her dress and in her everything. Right. So I feel like the character Jane, as she gets revealed, almost gets punished. Not the 
not the the character didn't get punished in the storyline. I mean, the development of the character from the writers, the writer's perspective gets turned into the worst possible cliche, you know, this all about Eve manipulative. And I'm just like, couldn't they have gone again? There are terrible lying, gaslighting people in the world, but to me, it, it's, it was creepy and it felt artificial. I, I would have been more interested in seeing a Jane who had the, like the, what your first word you said was d- the, the description of being adventurous and, ooh, let's just go do this. Uh, maybe a little um, uncautious. And again, a little unbuttoned and a little, I'm not going to let what everybody sees me as affect how I behave. I'm going to enjoy myself and not censor myself based on the fact that you all want to fuck me, (laughs) right? I would have liked to see that play out a little more organically than have her turn into this lying, manipulative she could have even still gone ahead and done what she did with Roger without as all the degree of lying. But keep in mind, she just was never that adventurous, carefree person. She was always lying, manipulative, right? Of course, so, but that's but that was the choice of the writers. She's not real, Dan. They made her up. <laughs> and they made- Sometimes like, I forget. Yeah, I know. And so they made, right, like there's the- No, no, I get, I, I get that. But I'm saying the writers made her that way. So however- they're playing with our expectations, which is what this show does better than any other show. Well, I, yeah, and I'm questioning the betterness of it in this case. So you start to see two kind of things forming from this. And again, I am not happy. <laughs> but uh-huh. the, it's the whatever she's working with Roger. And you have to laugh that Roger didn't even fucking follow through. And he, and, and, and. <laughs> that's right. That is a great, that's a great point. Why didn't Roger talk to Joan? Because he's Roger. Because he's Roger. You just forgot. Never cared. Never got yeah. to it. Just, you know, don't even. Or trust. The moment was over. Trust, the moment yeah, was gone. Trust <laughs> his own power so much. Like, it didn't matter. Her performance, Jane's performance, Peyton List's performance of Monday morning, uh, you know, being with every moment <laughs> of that stress. And boy, was she right <laughs> to have that uh-huh. stress, right? So two things. One is the the whatever is going on there with Roger. And then the other thing is this power dynamic with Joan. And I, I think that's probably one of the things that they, that the creators, Matt, Matt and co, um, were, were looking to set up here. Oh, yeah. Is, is this crushing of Joan. And I, I, I don't, it's very upsetting. <laughs> it's very upsetting. And Joan, you know, this is a great moment for Joan in a lot of, great, great, not all in a positive way, great as in important. First of all, the minute Joan realizes that Roger's involved and was going to intervene on Jane's behalf, so um, betrayed. Betrayed, but also if you'd cracked Joan's head open at the moment, Roger's going to propose to you would have spilled out of her head, right? She could she <laughs> could see the entire playing field at that point that, okay, this is now, Roger's involved. I know how Roger thinks better than Roger does, and that he's going to fall for her. And I know she's a liar before now anybody else does, and oh boy. This is not going to end well for anybody. So I think there's that part of it for Joan, which is just about Joan's insight and intelligence, emotional intelligence above all. Yet, it's also the moment, it's the moment Joan knows that her... The younger model has shown up. Her salad days are, if not ended, uh, it's the beginning of the end of of her prime. 
you could you could say in a sense the the days of Joan ruling the roost now are numbered because if this can happen and I don't run my show and I don't run my girls, ah, it's going to keep this is this is an omen. This is not a an outlier of of just something happening. Uh, it's not an anomaly, and she knows that too, just as instinctively as everything else. So. Yeah, this is this this marks the moment of the beginning of a decline that Joan can sense. You know, if you look at season one, as much as Don, as much as Roger, as much as advertising, as much as our culture, you see a Joan at the peak of her power. She's never going to get the apex. Does not go higher than that for for a Joan type person. So she has nowhere to go but down because she's got she's got everything working against her. She's got the culture. She's got the, the, her age. She's got the timing. She's got her influence all about to wane, I think. So to me, it's it, this is like one of many dice that are tumbling tumbling uh, uh, into her life. So you don't think she's going to find her joy with her future husband and lots of babies in the suburbs and going to the supermarket in a car? <laughs> you don't think that's going to be the highlight of Joan's of Joan's life and she's going to have, and she's just going to thrive in that environment, not making decisions bigger than what should the kids eat tonight? You don't think that's going to, you don't think that's going to be satisfying her? Somehow no. Right. I mean, that's what's so fascinating about this view of these people in this moment is whether we know what's coming or not for the characters, we do know what's coming for the, Decade. Yeah, Don can't see Kurt and Smitty as a signal. He's resisting it. He's he's dismissing it. Joan, with a lot higher emotional intelligence, sees Jane exactly for what she is. Mm. That's that <laughs> Jane is Joan's port here on statement. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it is it is it is a it is a clarion call for um for changing times. But let's go back to that, uh, the scene in the office, the sneaking, the actual, the sneaking in, the Rothko, all of that, because it's certainly important in terms of what happens with Sal, with Ken, and, you know, and then. Mm, yeah, right. J- Jane's only a part of it in, in the moment, for sure. Yeah. I found each of their reactions remarkable and telling and striking each in their own way. So we'll we'll take them one by one. So there's there's Harry <laughs> who, you know, looks and thinks like an accountant uh, as much as a, as much as an ad guy. I mean, that's the punchline of the whole Rothko thing. I mean, to just actually to roll it back a little bit. So the, par- the whole point of, of this Rothko, it, they've set it up as oh my god, it's a litmus test. Yeah, that's entirely right. It is Burt Cooper's test of all of us. We better go, we better study. We're all going to get called in one by yeah, one. We better right? study, right? <laughs> they're all, they're all gaming it out. Maybe there's a brochure around here somewhere that explains it. <laughs> like he bought it, like he bought a blender. Even before he said that, my brain is so rotted. I was like, Google, oh, can't you just Wikipedia? Oh. Just Google that yeah. shit. Right? <laughs> so, I so so that's Harry's lens through which he he's looking at this is it's got to mean and it's kind of Sal's too in a way. Sal has a little bit more of a pretentious approach to it. Harry's is much less pretentious. Like, can, can we just figure this fucking thing out? Like, what, we gotta we gotta we gotta crack this code. And he goes through the is it Emperor's new clothes things you have to right, right, right. <laughs> he overthinks it because he's Harry. So that's 
that 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 piece of it. Sal's interesting because he kind of he's kind of middle of the road between Harry and Ken. Because Ken we'll get to in a moment, but Ken obviously takes an artistic view of it. And Sal, it's a bit of a hacky art guy. It's so exactly a hacky art guy. It's, it's I'm, I'm an artist. It's got to mean it something. It has to mean wow. something. Now, that's valid in advertising. Oh, but yeah, he 60s has, ad guy. Absolutely. You know, you need, you, what, what does the visual mean, right? So yeah. uh, it's it's serving him well. It shows what a good art director he is. But it, yeah. it, it misses the point of art. Um, <laughs> and right. it reminds me, I have a friend who, if, she listens to this podcast and this episode won't stay my friend, but she's, she always, she's an art person. She's an artist and she's very always talking about the right brain and the, and she's, I've seen her miss things. You know, she's yeah. so, she's so type A about what being an artist means. It means you are creative <laughs> in this very specific way and missing the, Missing the the beauty of the red blur, right? You know, we talked about Rockwell a couple weeks ago. Mm. And um, artists often will dismiss Rockwell for being an illustrator. That he wasn't an artist. He was just, he wasn't interpreting anything. He was making things that were true to life. He wasn't making any larger statements. Which can miss the point of Rockwell. Because there was subject matter that was really deep in a lot of Rockwell's work that was overshadowed by the fact that he wasn't interpretive in, in the way that he painted. So in a sense, that's, that's kind of Sal. <laughs> I just, know, I want to say, parallel there. I'm with you. I think uh, Rockwell is one of the most underrated American artists. I, I, as an artist, I think his work yeah. is stunning and rich and full of meaning, but also just in, executed stunning. So, so sometimes, sometimes things can be too accessible that they, they get dismissed and not appreciated in the right way. It's just Americana. It's just kitsch. Mm -hmm. It's like, look at that. Yeah. Look at that. Look, what do you? Yeah. yeah. In advertising, because it is a, it, it's artistic, but it's commerce and it's not pure in, in a lot of ways can, can suffer from that. So Sal, I think it, it expresses that type of a thing. Then you get to Ken who it just has a very beautiful interpretation of, what art is, right? You just feel it. It's not, you can't really describe it. You're not meant to, you know, you feel something, but let, let, let that be it. That, that feeling is what it's all about. And I feel like this episode, the, 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 this Rothko is a bit of a totem for the whole episode. And we can, we can, we'll expand on that. But the idea of how things make you feel and what that says about you is all through it because you can replace the Rothko with Don's Cadillac and have a lot of the same things to say about, about the characters, interpretation, everything else. But getting back to these guys in, in the room, they each have this interpretation. They each reveal something about themselves in their reaction to the, to the painting. Maybe he has a brochure in here or something that explains it. I don't think it's supposed to be explained. I'm an artist, okay? It must mean something. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe you're just supposed to experience it. Because when you look at it, you do feel something, right? It's like looking into something very deep. You could fall in. That's true. Did someone tell you that? 
How could someone tell you that? This is pointless. Let's go. I'm ready. A couple recommendations. So if you've never seen on uh, PBS, and I'm sure the, there's now a Broadway streaming service as well, uh, the Broadway show Red with, Al, where, uh, with Alfred Molina as Rothko is well worth your while. And then I don't recall the name of the documentary that came out a year or two years, within the last couple of years, also about Rothko, also uh, through PBS. I saw that, and that was powerful. phenomenal. His children were involved with it, and I had no idea just how important Rothko was to 20th century mm. art. And boy, oh boy. And um, <laughs> in fact, the idea that his paintings were being bought for investment as opposed to their aesthetic value goes right to the, that's part of Rothko's story or the story of Rothko's art is involved in that. And so what do you have Bert Cooper <laughs> talking about? That thing will double by next Christmas. The most cynical. <laughs> I mean, that was, that. what a punchline to the whole thing right? is everybody yeah. is, you know, Bert Cooper I mean, he's this fascinating character. There needs to be a there needs to be a Mad Men prequel on Bert on the the career of Bert Cooper. I don't. I, we have to figure out who would play <laughs> the young Bert, but there's someone there. For yeah, that. who's 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 out there? That's that looks like a young Bobby Morris, right? I mean, there are things that Bert Cooper does relate to from a feeling thing. His whole sensory thing, his whole Japanese, whatever he's got going on. There's something genuine there that isn't cynical. But so, but so it fit in that you would think that this piece of art would would have that meaning to him, and yeah. and that this litmus test that he was applying to everybody actually had value to him in a in a feelings way, and not in just a a pure power power move with people, which is apparently all it is because it was an investment. And he doesn't give a shit what it looks like. I've heard Matt Weiner say that the whole thing about the Japanese and taking your shoes off. It's less of, you know, 5% of it might be his preference and an affinity for the culture and genuine in that, in that regard. But he's like, really, at the end of the day, Bert's thing is to manipulate people and to get them to act ways that he wants them to act to keep them off balance. And taking your shoes off when you enter his office because he's into Japanese culture is just another ploy. It's just another ruse for manipulation. So you can throw the Rothko onto that pile of... No, and that fully makes more sense. You're absolutely right. right. And it's it's a lot more fun, frankly, to think of Bert Cooper that way. Definitely. But I want to know how he got there. Let's do that. No, I think that's a good idea. So we've got the the Barrett's spinoff. Yeah. Which which really could have. Which we don't need to recast. We could use. Yeah, no, they're around. Um, (laughs) And now now the the Bert Cooper story with um, Miss Blankenship at his desk. So Ken has this reaction and his whole... His whole point of even being there was to get laid. <laughs> like his yeah. entire purpose. Yeah, he was along for the ride with with the uh, the hot chick who's acting. Yeah, he talks about it the next day, right? It's all it, it's all part of the ploy. And, and then he says this incredibly artsy artsy thing, um, which again was was I believe completely genuine. But the effect, the chick magnet effect that a line like that might have. It worked. Yeah, he cast his line and he caught the wrong fit. Yeah, it worked. <laughs> uh, got himself an invitation to, <laughs> to Sal and Kitty's. Yeah. No, but I mean, it actually, it, you know, it, it, it tied in with the story and all. You know, it actually perked up 
Sal's ears in a few ways, and then the story, right, the whole plot. In fact, I love that scene in the hallway where Ken goes to Sal to ask him to read the, the, his next story, and he says to Sal, you're not like everyone else. And Sal, who's deathly afraid of being found out that he's not like, you know, find out that he's, that he's truly not like everyone else. Does not miss a beat. I'm not, I'm not so sure about that. <laughs> His instinct was to, to run right into the, into the, the broad middle <laughs> of everything. I'm not different. Who, me different? You calling me different? I'm, a not, I'm, not, I'm not different in any way, Ken. Anything you thought I was unique or special, I am not. <laughs> yep. In all of, you know, two lines of dialogue, we're able to, to sense that about, about that character, which is so great. So, uh, yeah, so that, let's talk about Kitty and Sal and the, uh, the, marriage, uh, the marriage from hell. Oh, my gosh. Going on so there? you've got this beautiful apartment that's painted kind of wild. And there, you know, once I guess once we decided we weren't going to get a bigger place, they, it's, I got all these artistic colors. It's lovely. Mm-hmm. Sal, yeah. Sal is the cook, at least for this, for this event. Right, right. I have a question for you. I've never had a pine nut and pineapple pie, whatever that was. Oh, that sounds horrendous. No. Okay. That's, is that a thing? I don't know like if that's a thing, thing, but I could see it doesn't sound gross like a lot of 60s things. Like I could see the, like something you'd put in a jello mold. I could see the the crunch of a pine nut being not because it's probably an old Italian thing. Oh, you are probably right. Right. Yeah. Right. So I, it right. does it doesn't sound terrible to me because that little bit of crunch with pineapple sounds kind of nice. Uh, listen, if someone served it, I, if Kitty made it for me, I would I would here's my question. Where do they live? I think it was Queens. Did they did they say because I didn't catch where they live, but then he had to go home to Manhattan and I was like, oh yeah. wait. They Yeah, I, I'm guessing Queens. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, you said Queens. <laughs> you said Queens. <laughs> I'm the worst. Oh, oh, he said Queens. God. Um right. So Okay. <laughs> I got that out of my system. No, I really that was my question. That was my question for you. Yeah. Was where do they live? Wait, at the it, yeah. I didn't notice they weren't in Manhattan until the moment he says that. Did I miss something? Yeah, I think Brooklyn was still like a family. Jesus, the trains, place. the trains on a Sunday. I mean, that's a commute, no matter what. Kitty, who's played by Sarah Drew. Oh my gosh. I mean, this was our real first scene with her. You know, we saw her for glimpses. I think at Paul's party at the beginning of the year, well, which she says she she actually she brings that up. Yeah, right? I met them She's, real real quick. I, I met them right? once, but we were all yeah. And uh, and this we get a real good dose of her. And first of all, just the most, I don't know, radiant, beautiful woman and fun and the broad smile and the open face and, um, you know, the little story about them growing up together. I mean, it's obviously, it's all a reflection on Sal's closeted. Closetedness, uh, but my big takeaway from the scene, and I'm sorry to cut you off, but this is the, like, right there, it was right there, is that everything about this scene, (laughs) except for the lighter, was not unlike any other shitty marriage, you know, like shitty 60s marriage at that time. And what, because, and where I saw that especially was that that was a lovely thing where they talk about how they meet and they're finishing each other's sentences. I mean, these two are, these two are connected that's right. and tight and that's not fiction. And, and it kind of, it's really a reflection on how easy it would be to hide your, your homosexuality in a marriage. Yeah. Because you can kind of sit there, you can kind of sit there smoking while she's doing the cross stitch on the couch or whatever that was. Talk all about work. I mean, that was the thing is that fight at the end 
That's where she was so great. Her acting was so wonderful. Her acting was fantastic. In that fight. But it's such a, it's, it's. She's half blaming herself and she's expressing toward him and he's trying to deflect. What's heartbreaking to me is that that, she was so wide open fairly early in this marriage. That did not work for me. What you did made me feel terrible. And he was like, oh God, I would never want you to feel terrible. And if Betty Draper had had been able to articulate that to Don Draper mm-hmm. six years ago, and Don Draper had reacted as well, if Trudy Campbell had been able to articulate yeah. that. Well, first of all, Don's not marrying the woman that talks to him that way. The tragedy is, you know, if you take Sal's homosexuality out of it, which you can't, but if you do, it's a real marriage. Yeah, exactly. He, it's, <laughs> it doesn't become, it's not thrown in her face. No. At this point in time. It's, it's, <laughs> and all of these men are bringing their work home and, and talking about all the work stuff that the woman, the little woman doesn't need to be involved in. And you could, you could do your own suppressing all along and never mention it. And there it is. Fascinating scene. Yeah. And the fact that they played it so well and we're talking about it like this means this was all discussed. I mean, I'm not patting ourselves on the back. I think it's, I think it's somewhat obvious, but like, that kind of this kind of discussion had to have taken place in the writing of that of that whole segment. Absolutely. Right? You know, you could you, that's not none of this is by accident. We keep saying that. But none of this is is um incidental. That's right. That scene could have been about some of the closet percolating up to the to the surface and that's not at all what happened. Not one bit. Do you even see me here? Of course I do. You wouldn't know it, Salvatore. Sorry. We're just talking about work. You're right. It was rude. You know, I tried to include myself. A lot of people find me very interesting, you know? <laughs> I am so sorry, Kitty. So you've got Sal, who keeps the lighter, and who uses it at the end, and who's practically stroking it with some sort of lubrication. (laughs) He is fingering that light Um, pretty heavily. But the question for me is what, what's he telling himself? Uh, Yeah. I thought, I thought that question. The answer I came up with is when your loins start to have a tingle, (laughs) it's hard to ignore that. Right. So some of this has to be bleeding in. I mean, he did have a dinner with Elliot a few years ago. You know, there was a date, there was a moment, and there was a panic marriage <laughs> right after that that date or following that date. So it's not it's not like it it doesn't occur to him. But I think this the the story he also says is I don't have that many male friends who recognize my talent. This is somebody, this is artist to artist. I'm I'm art bonding. I'm artist bonding. <laughs> right? The foundation of the of the attraction. I sees Ken in that way, which he didn't before, even with the first story that was written. But I think, to your question about what what is Sal telling himself, saying to himself, I think there are no words what Sal is saying. I think that there are, if you're really self-reflective, when you have a strong feeling, anything, whether it's to a a painting or a movie or anything at all in life, uh, if you're really reflective, you try to put it to words. You try to understand it intellectually to yourself. Even if you're just 
walking home from the movie theater alone and working your way through a really powerful movie or scene that you saw. You're trying to talk your way through it because that's how we do it. But there is another less less self-reflective, and it's especially powerful when the thing that you might be reflecting on is unpleasant or unwanted, uh, as in Sal's case. I think you just feel. I think that that's it's almost like Ken Watt looking at the Rothko was Sal. Boy, I like this lighter. I like that he left it here. I'm going to keep it. I'm going to enjoy fondling it in this way that I'm, <laughs> and I'm going to keep using it. And that's it. I just, I like how it feels. Mm. What, you know, he doesn't have to answer to anyone. No one will ever know it came from Ken. I like how it feels. And I'm going to leave it at that. Let's take a break. We will be right back. So I love the whole um, foreplay thing with Don and the Cadillac. <laughs> That's a take. <laughs> There's a... <laughs> well, it's invigorating to write a check for $6,500 knowing you can afford it. You ever see the film Quiz Show? I'm going to get in trouble if I say no. No, I have seen it. It's wonderful. Robert Redford directed. And uh, John Turturro. Ray Fiennes. John Turturro is awesome in it. Ray Fiennes is awesome in it. And Rob Morrow plays um, Dick Goodwin, who's a real person, was a real person. He died a couple years ago. Doris Kearns Goodwin's husband. I see. Uh-huh. I wouldn't yeah. have known who she was a few years ago, but now I do. I know. Not the least bit relevant to what I'm about no. to say. No, good, good talk. <laughs> Rob Morrow plays Dick Goodwin, and he's a congressional aide. Anyway, the point is, there's a scene, the opening scene of the film is him buying a Cadillac. This being the late 50s. Mid, yeah, late 50s, because the, the radio playing while he's in the showroom, I think, was the announcement of Sputnik, right? So it's nice. We're, we're in that post-war years. It's a whole thing about the Cadillac and look at the tires and the, the fabric on the seats. And, and, you know, this idea of Cadillac as a metaphor, I think we almost take it for granted that people say, oh, it's the Cadillac of this or the Cadillac. Of That's that. right. It's the pinnacle, the ultimate thing. We don't look at the source of that of that very often, but you're right. Well, this was the heyday of that. This was the this is when that meant the most. Chuck Berry sings about Cadillacs, and I'm a Springsteen guy. Springsteen's all about Cadillac. There's just pink Cadillac, pink Cadillac. It, it, Elvis's Cadillac. Like it's it's such a, and this is where our celebrity culture comes from. Like celebrities were buying Cadillacs. Celebrities were talking about Cadillacs. Unless it's the best thing you could buy in the in that 50s and 60s time period. That was our culture. I mean, I grew up in the 80s. Cadillacs are a piece of shit. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Still quality made cars, but the idea of Cadillac being the ultimate in the luxury vehicle is just, you know, even as a domestic car, it didn't even ring true. Cadillac has always has been like rebuilding for 30 years, right? It's brand. But back then there was there was nothing, nothing that meant the same as a Cadillac. It really that line about, oh, any car can take you there, but uh Cadillac means you've arrived. I mean, it's a cheesy ass. Oh, it was a great. It was a great cheesy. Hundred percent true. Yeah. It was. It was the. It was almost stating the obvious, and it was indisputable, and it was absolutely. I mean, when we talk about America being the Colossus, you know, um, Cadillac was the ultimate symbol of that. So it's been done. You know, the 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 guy stepping up in 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 society and the world. Uh, does so by by buying the Cadillac. 
So it, it reminded me of that scene in the quiz show. And it's a little bit replicated here, which is interesting. The scene with Roger and Bert and Don, and then just Bert and Don, mm-hmm. they didn't offer him anything. <laughs> like, what was that? No, it was interesting. Well, I think I think I think st- structurally it was it was the impetus for Don to pull the trigger on the cash. Sure, line. but they didn't. But, there was no talk of money or position. No, was it- no, we've already done that. <laughs> That's happened. You know, we, we've seen those scenes. This was uh, them informing Don that the Martinson Coffee people, or the Martinson Coffee uh, sequence, uh, the, the resulting in them getting the the account, was such a coup or a sterling coup that uh someone who i think it was the the, the client right inviting don to be on the board of whatever the fuck whatever the fuck philanthropy <laughs> philanthropy it's a lot of whirly gigs yeah. <laughs> as cooper said uh but i think it another another type of MacGuffin. i think we could say it was just kind of there to drive everything forward uh which was them you know you're gonna wear your tuxedo a lot more and this is the way things work and you're stepping. Take a. You t- t- you're asking to be to take a seat, and of course, the next thing we see is Don sitting in the Cadillac. Mm. So, whatever that ends up being and how that plays out, yes, it's a it's an advancement of Don's rise in in his business. Well, in his in his business life, in the short term, it it gets him to 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 pull the trigger on on that Cadillac. You know, it's interesting. Don Don and Duck have now made their peace, and Don. To his word, he genuinely acknowledged, no, Duck, you you did the work yeah. required. Yeah. We'll call that detente. I don't know that they've gotten past it, but yeah. And going back to Don getting, you know, I, 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 we've mentioned this before, it, it is only at a certain level, uh, you know, the, it is not creative's job to, to get them to sign. And yet Don took that role. Right, he was like, "Nope, you'll find you're going to sign first, and then we're going to tell you what you get." That is an indicator of Don's ownership of his of the agency, of his responsibility to the the full thriving business of the agency. That he's willing That's to right. do that because he's not an account guy technically. But there's a certain point where you rise up and you and the and the roles start to merge. Duck, and Duck isn't there. Duck is. I Duck, don't know if Duck is. No, I don't think. I think. I think Duck um, is meant to tee it up for Don. Or, or someone like that. So Duck's not there yet. Don is a partner. Duck is not. So I think this this thing with with Burton Roger is more about bringing Don into the partnership. In the I guess. Yeah. I I guess that's what was confusing because I had a moment of like, wait, it, are they going to offer him partner? Wait, he, they already did that. <laughs> like that was what yeah. where I was a little like, what was the what was going on? Yeah. What I wanted to say about Duck also is. This is now the first episode we're seeing him as a reactivated alcoholic, right? And and you could see like that first scene where he comes in, you sort of see there's like a he's 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 jacked up take on the world, yeah. He's yeah. and then and then what you see is that he's trying not to drink, but he wants to drink. Right. So there's a whole well, Don offers him, yeah. So there's a whole nobody knows. So is he drinking every night at home, or we we don't know if he's just a we dry don't know. We drunk. Can't smell his breath. Can't smell his breath. So he's either on. a dry drunk or he's sort of drinking and still trying to manage it. But he's this is definitely post, <laughs> you know, post Chauncey, yeah. post, um, you know, he's 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 something again, and it's a different we, vibe. We, we have to assume that his falling off the wagon was not one time. Well, we don't. You don't know. 
You don't know. We don't know. We haven't seen it, we, but we, his the change in his demeanor would suggest it. Maybe. There is a phenomenon known as being a dry drunk. No, I get it. I know what that is. And, and you can get pretty jacked up on, uh, on just your jonesing, on just your, your, your <laughs> insobriety as defined a different way than, yeah, it's, it's, an, yeah. So you're probably, you're probably right, but I'm not sure. Well, I've heard Matt Weiner refer to this period for Duck um, and, and, and how the character plays out that um, he says, you know, the sad truth is that some people do their best work when they're drinking. And Duck's one of them. You know, there, there, there's no, I don't think, it's not incidental that uh, last episode he fell off the wagon and now he's teeing up great accounts for the Oprah, which we haven't seen him do once. Look, it is, a, it is, there's that theme again. It's a social lubricant. And, yeah. you know. No, that's, it, 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 there's a reason people are addicted. Yeah. and yeah. Or, or start, you know, or start. It's like, oh my God, I was so much looser mm-hmm. with guys last night in the bar. I'm going to do that again. <laughs> Right. Oh, I have, you know, you get, you smoke some weed and you think of symphonies, like whatever. There's all, you know, drugs, drugs have their value. (laughs) Otherwise we wouldn't use them, you know? Right. But, but, but Matthew Weiner specifically talked about that with regard to Duck saying, we like to think we're going to improve our lives all around when we, when we um, get, get sober. And there's, there's a lot of that, but some people do their best work when they're, when they're high. Yeah. You have to relearn anyway. Yes. Yeah, and this is, and he's not creative. He's not creating symphonies. Symphonies. He has to lure people to to the agency. <laughs> um, so yeah, so so that's that's a, I think a huge part of what we can see out of the Martinson way. Mm. Um, but getting back to Don, he's got this. It's almost like a a, a a step up in his life, right? He's got this great professional success again. He buys the Cadillac. He gets to his wife. It's that great moment of, hey, honey, come out and look at the Cadillac that's sitting in the in the street for us. Uh, and Don's now like totally consumed with keeping that car pristine, right? <laughs> so got, funny. Right? You know, I don't want the silly putty in between the seats and wash your hands and don't go in there. Um, in fact, when they make out, he even says, let's go inside. <laughs> we're, not, we're not doing that in here. <laughs> we're not doing that here. Um, yes, that was not about decorum. <laughs> <laughs> so and Don's feeling it. And we can feel Don feeling it because it's kind of like permeates everything that he says and talks about from that point forward. And again, this is an episode in which he refers to his impoverished past. And it was interesting. Sally chalks it up to the old days. Olden days. The olden days, right? But Betty is in in that in that moment is going. Well, that wasn't my childhood. Like like, yeah. let her think that. But you know, so so Don really is starting to be more vocal about this, you know, depression, this era, this um, impoverished. You know, he had an outhouse. He had, they had an outhouse. He had to follow a string in the dark. That's right. To get there. Um, that's that's so. This Cadillac that's- is. It's meaningful. He's, it's really meaningful for him. It's and it's a little scary to him. Like I don't want to. I don't want to break. You know, I don't want to break <laughs> anything. Right. Like like I'll like he's. I think Don is very driven by superstition. You know, you don't talk about these things. You don't. You don't curse this. You don't. You know, he had all that. He has all that crazy religion in his background and in his head. There's just you don't. You don't. 
don't touch it because you're going to, you know, like step on the step on a crack, you're going to break your mother's back. Like that's how he's treating this car, right? Like if I could get away with not driving it, I would not. Basically, I just want to arrive in it. (laughs) It's amazing, actually. It's impressive that they put a picnic into it at all. Talks about a lot, I remember, on the blog at the time. But that scene of that shot of Betty shaking out the blanket and leaving all the trash everywhere. Um, <laughs> I have a hard talk- time believing that one. I None of us are old enough to know, but I don't. I rem- Well, I, I mean, I remember saying it to my mom, telling my mom, my mom who like never watched Mad Men. She's watched like a few scenes of it. It's just not her thing. But I told her about that and she was like, nah. <laughs> yeah, not, not that her memory is pristine. Right. Right. These people must be true pricks. It makes, it doesn't <laughs> even make, do even then. It doesn't right. make, yeah, it doesn't, it does. Uh, I know there was a, di- I know I could see, you know, little, little littering, but I can't, I yeah. can't have a hard time seeing that. And I know. Yeah, it might have been an exaggeration. I know that in the, in the 70s, there was a big don't litter campaign, you know, that became a public service thing of we don't, yeah. we don't litter. The don't, the yeah. Give a hoot, don't pollute. And we don't litter and, you know, don't litter here. And signs for all of that became, mm-hmm. you know, there, there didn't used to be yeah. curb your dog. didn't used to be a rule. Like all kinds of things yeah. have changed, but that struck me as a little egregious. Yeah. 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 It could have been, yeah. it could have been, I, I, neither of us knows firsthand. No. So, but um, yeah. it was for effect, right? There was a, there was, it's a good visual metaphor again. So they kind of debut the car at the stork club at the party for Grin and Barrett, right? So the network and it's in the city. Well, first of all, we see Jimmy calling the house where he knows he's going to get Betty to invite her. He says he left messages for Don, but who the hell knows? You know, it never occurred. Well, first of all, if he left messages for Don, Don got those messages. Yeah. Uh, because Jane is an excellent secretary. That's right. Uh, so either he ignored them or Jimmy lied. And now it didn't even occur. It didn't occur to me until just this moment, as you bring it up, this whole thing was a setup. Like what Jimmy ends up doing, Jimmy yes, was Jimmy premeditated, planned on doing. Jimmy already knew. 100%. And he decided to ruin these people. And the I'll tell you, the, the final piece of the puzzle for me was go back and listen to uh, Before the Holidays to our our interview with Melinda McGraw. Just go listen to it again anyway, because it's the greatest yeah. thing in the world. Um, and by the way, our Patreon members uh, got extra content. So if you become a Patreon member, and we don't judge if you don't. I Roberta doesn't judge. I judge. Okay. I am I am a listener of many podcasts that I have not become their Patreon. So I. You know, that I, I unfairly judge. I keep right, exactly. <laughs> um, but there is um a good what like eight minute chunk of extra of extra interview that uh mm. that we dropped in there. So um anyway, but Melinda's description of how much Jimmy hates Don Draper was the final kind of piece of the puzzle for me. And then I watched this episode and, um, and, and, oh, I get it. He hates them both. He hates them both. His whole pretense of adoring Betty. I'm sure he kind of does adore her, but he hates her because he knows that if he wasn't funny, she would never pay attention to him. And in her case, even more, it's not just if he wasn't funny, if he wasn't famous and funny, because if he was funny and not famous, she wouldn't be she wouldn't be spending any energy on him at all. 
Um, and he hates them. He hates them and he wants to destroy them. His hatred is what led to him setting up to lay this on them. But in terms of calling Betty, I believe that was a necessity. He was scrambling to make sure that they were there that night because he probably did leave messages at that. And listen, what was the last time Don saw Bobby? She was tied up and he was, <laughs> he was telling her to go fuck off. So he wasn't good. So he's not going to respond to an invitation. He's going to let that go. And whether he had left it good or bad with Bobby, I mean, he might have, he, they might still be seeing each other even for, I mean, I don't it think it was they, left bad. It was left bad. It but either way, bad. even if it was good, he's still not going to take a call from Jimmy Barrett if he doesn't have to. No, he might not take the call, but he could, he could RSVP. He could say, uh, Jane, tell him we'll be there. You know what? It could, there's a thousand ways he could handle that. Um, the point is he's ignoring messages from the Barretts that he doesn't have to tend to for business. I disagree. I think he's ignoring messages from Jimmy Barrett, same as he always did, because he was fucking his wife. Even if he, even if that's, even if that's not even happening now, remember when Jimmy was trying to reach him and Bobby was holed up in, in Peggy's, he, he's like, he doesn't know, like he's avoiding Jimmy Barrett because he's fucking his wife. And even if it's now, it's because I fucked your wife. It doesn't matter. Right. I don't want to talk to Jimmy Barrett. <laughs> right. My point is, my point is Jimmy wasn't um, seeking out Betty. He wasn't stalking Betty for the sake of getting in with her. He was doing, he, he was doing whatever he had to do to get them to that party because he wanted, he, he was, that garbage line had been, had been holstered for a while, you know, in this episode where Don's feeling his oats, Don's stepping up in the world. Don's being, you know, more, <clears throat> more success and more entree into uh, global philanthropy and all the rest. Um, ends with a client telling him he's garbage, rightly so, calling him out for banging his wife. And <laughs> the coup de grace, <laughs> you know, we're, we're all just one bad evening away from vomiting <laughs> in the new it's really, it was it was quite powerful. I mean, he he really destroyed each of them separately and individually and and left the left them in shambles. And neither of them knew that the other it was a J bomb. He dropped a J bomb right <laughs> right in the middle. It's so interesting to watch, you know, to watch John Hamm's performance of Don Draper. We talk about the shame. Melinda talked a lot about the shame that that is Don Draper and that is Bobby Barrett. But but in this case, you know, Don getting confronted, it wasn't just about his marriage. It wasn't just the panic. It was a deep, deep wound level shame. You've got Betty dealing with it's just a different level of shame. Betty's shame is like more this more the surface stuff and more her own calculations about this marriage and this this horrible Jew. <laughs> that 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 Jimmy really provoked. So what, what the reason the, the thing that I see about him working her, yeah, is to finally get out her ugliness, which he did. He finally has his moment where she says this anti-Semitic thing to him, and he can finally say, "See, I knew it." You know, you think I'm a you people? You're you're a you're you're a you know you're you you're, you're you don't think he was genuinely trying to help express not help express his frustration 
and open her eyes. No, he was destroying them. What's the value? Well, I think I think he knew that doing so would destroy them. Uh, what's his? I don't see any other motivation. He hates them. He hates people but like it, that. But how would he know that she's going to say that? I mean, yeah, he knows that disliking them is enough motivation for him to want to destroy them and and bring all this this horrible truth, you know, to speak this horrible truth and and ruin all this shit for them. Absolutely, that's enough. But I don't think he knows that she's going to say something ugly about it. I don't. I don't know that he knows that much of it. That he knows enough about her to know that. I think it was a bonus. Yeah, I'll I'll buy that. I think he suspected it. I think he suspected that if he pushed yeah. it, he would he would he would he could push that button. But he also it's not new. He's not new. He's met a million Bettys, and they all yeah. underneath the surface hate hate him because he's a you know are anti-Semitic. Yeah. You know, if there's if there's anything I've learned in these last five years in life, it's that anti-Semitism runs deeper and and more pervasively and throughout inside more people than we than I've ever understood in my lifetime. I think that in that if I was Jimmy Barrett's age in 1962, it wouldn't that wouldn't be a surprise. You know, I wouldn't be surprised yeah, I, having I, the revelations I've been having in the last five years. I think if he had a dollar to to lay down, he'd say her most likely reaction would be to storm off which is effectively what she did, but with the... <laughs> yeah, like I said, it's a bonus, the, but I don't think he's... ugly, yeah. You know, I, I, Yeah, I don't know that he that he gamed it out that much, but yeah, I, I, agree, I agree on the bonus part for sure. He's blaming everybody. He's got his own victim thing. You know, yeah. he's got a marriage. He's got this marriage, and, right. and then he goes around and he... And he, dest- and he complains about it. And he complains it. about yeah. it, and he destroys the, the, the men. He's not destroying Bobby. He's destroying... Don and everything is bad in my life because I'm a Jew and yet he's rich and famous. Like, so, you know, he's he's got his own. He's no, he's, he's no hero and he's no angel. Nope. Um, but, but. And my God, Patrick Fischler, my God, (laughs) that performance. It's, it's, it's in how understated it is. And the fact that you can be understated playing a character who's so. Not understated. Yes. But you're right. It is a subtle. There is a, there was a restraint to the entire um, party scene yes. at the store club. A restraint to how he, every line was calibrated. Everything he said felt calibrated mm-hmm. in a perfect way, and that's the writing, and that's the performance, and that's the collaboration between the two. So it, it's it's everybody involved. But the whole thing from setting up Don and you know what I like about you, nothing. And he kind of and he's like, "Ha, I'm just the clown. You're just gonna laugh at me, and you're gonna." You're gonna smile and wink and nod, and everything's good. And then I'm gonna lay. I'm gonna shit right. In the, I'm gonna shit right in your Cadillac. That's right. It was was beyond stunning. And in the same way that when Bobby schooled Peggy, to me, I I read that as, oh, this is why this character is here in our lives. This is <laughs> she has this other purpose other than driving this plot along with Don. Um, is that she has this lasting impact on Peggy's life, which is insanely positive and beautiful and noteworthy. Um, this was Jimmy's reason for being in the show. Right. And <laughs> was to have this, and and have this converse effect. Yeah, on, yeah not so insanely positive marriage. and beautiful, but definitely the, 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 he just, he just took it all out, you know, mm-hmm. he just took it all out of the bag and laid it on the table or whatever That's I'm trying right. to say. Um, so yeah and I don't know if that's what the strut club looked like but it looked like a fun place oh 
you know how I feel about those parties. Actually, that one didn't. That one I don't. Really, I didn't. More I didn't yeah, I didn't visualize. I didn't visualize <laughs> visualize myself there at all. And because I'm not wearing those clothes, I'm not wearing that that red of Bobby Barrett and that blue of Betty Draper and the fancy and the, that's not and the the white. My God, the white jacket. That's a white jacket affair. That is a dinner. That is a dinner jacket. That We're is dinner in that jacket. Before we go to break, the gold violin. It's the most perfect, beautiful thing I've ever seen, but it can't play music. Welcome to the Draper's Marriage. Welcome to the Draper's Marriage. <laughs> Welcome to the Cadillac that you can't put your feet on the seat on. <laughs> right. Welcome to the Cadillac that you you can't get that smell out of. <laughs> Welcome to the Romano's marriage. Bingo. Bingo. All right. All right. Let's break. We'll be back with quotes. I like to go south of Mexico with the copy colored girls wearing just a cup of joe. Exotic girl, exotic brew, melting sun, melting sun, melting sun. Dan, what's your quote? So, continuing with this store club scene, um, after all of, after Jimmy drops the J bomb. And both, you can almost see like Don and Betty, they're getting their coat and they're like real, they're like staggering. Like they each got punched in the nuts. So Jimmy's handing the shawl or the jacket or whatever. Good night, you two. It's been a gas. I just want to talk about this line. <laughs> it's not, a, this is not the, a visual medium, but Dan is so excited right now. <laughs> <laughs> like, my arms are going like a whirly gig. <laughs> that, um. No, it's, it's, you know, he's playing this clown. And like I said, just the very first time we met him, he's like way more shrewd than he, than he gives off, um, knows what everybody's doing. And I don't know that line. It's been a gas. It's sort of like, Hey, you bridge and tunnel people who come into the city for events and you're just out there in the suburbs. You're not really part of the artistic life. Um, you probably come in and, work with celebrities, Don, and, you know, it's been a gas. It's sort of like a, it's almost like, here, I'm going to give you what you came for. That line, it's sort of like, hey, when I'm hanging out with Lenny Bruce, like, this is how we talk. And it's sort of like, almost like a, after I've just kind of shit in the punch bowl, I'm going to act like everything's great and I'm going to give you, you know, and the, the relationship's all set. And just that line, it's been a gas, just to me, was the final Jimmy Barrett saying, I'm miles ahead of you. Mm. I'm so far past where you guys are. Go fuck yourselves. And good night, everybody. Yeah, right. My quote is said by the mysterious blonde woman in the flashback of young Don Draper, the car salesman. And I love that we now have a new, you know, you described, you used the the, the term verse uh, about the the the, the bowl cut dick flashbacks, right? Mm -hmm. And these are, you know, this is sequential with that, but we now know, oh, there's a whole new possibility of of fill-in that we didn't think about if we were going to get or not, that we now know. Yeah, how did we get from the train to Sterling Cooper? Oh, and we're going to get that. Oh, cool, right? (laughs) Right. So that's the first thing that's exciting. It's like, oh, oh, look what just happened. (laughs) Post-Korea Don. Post-Korea Don, whole other thing. 
And I think they did a really good job that with using his hair to make him genuinely <laughs> look younger, right? That was great. So we've got this mystery blonde woman and, and she simply says, you're not Don Draper. And oh, my God, wh- what? So it just opens up a world to us that we didn't know. Again, it's like you always talk about that tree trunk of a, of a mystery, of a plot of season one. Now, again, things that's are- That's been absent. That's been absent. Yeah. And things are way more splintered and we've got so much going on in all the worlds. Mm. But, oh, we're back to like, whoa, <laughs> what happened next <laughs> right. and who's that? Yeah, this is awesome. like a, a, yank, a yank back to the past that we absolutely were not. But listen, he has this flashback during the process of buying the Cadillac. Well, I now ask myself, because you always do, I am now in the habit of asking myself, why, well, why are we having this, this flashback? In this case, it's a little more obvious. And he had that same, and he has that flashback, and it shakes him. It gives him that same... He gets the hell out of there. Shameful look, and he gets out of there, and he does... And, and, it, and it has to do with, God, it has to do with spending money. It has to do with, with being, with, um, that he really, he really, and I, I think this is, we're, we're going to learn more about this, but his relationship with money and spending and having and all of that, and we start to see it, we've started to see it all along, but in this episode with the struggle of like owning a Cadillac and like, he, like I said, like he does, he, he's sort of in this Cadillac, like, like holding a, a holding a baby that you never like when you're not getting like yeah. like he's kind of holding it out out far away in his hands mm-hmm. like it's not something he really can grasp this is a key to that yeah and i and i think it's also that he sees the come on from the sales guy and it reminds him of himself having to hustle to get people to buy a car and he realizes whether you're selling a used car on a lot with a fake name or you're in the manhattan showroom of the cadillac dealership it's still the same hustle isn't it interesting that it was a British salesperson selling, sell, no, yeah, uh, selling the ultimate American fantasy? Yeah. Uh, because what says, because English says class to Americans, even though, and so does Cadillac. It's just a weird little, anyway. Right, and that guy was probably from Miami, so who knows? The quote, <laughs> so the quote, again, <laughs> that's right. The quote, <laughs> Moira Rose, uh, the quote, the quote again is, you're not Don Draper. It is not in itself and uh, uh, the greatest line ever written. It is simply an entree, if you will, into a world. Hang on, folks. This actually goes back to, to last season. I didn't mean to, but it's like Dorothy opening that door and seeing the color for the first time, right? It's like, oh, whoa, <laughs> what, what's coming, right? So. Uh, well, well, what's coming is Night to Remember. Next week's episode, A Night to Remember, is once you're past the midway point of the season, every episode is like, oh, 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 oh. Yeah. <laughs> just yeah. like. It's just uh, breathless race to the finish. Yeah. And we've got, and we're only halfway, you know, we're only just over halfway. Yeah. So it's like every episode. The jet set. I mean. It's coming. But it's, it's just, mm-hmm. anyway. Mount, uh, Mountain King is coming. Six feet, uh, six feet under? No. <laughs> <laughs> six month leave is what I was trying to say. I know. Anyway. Guys, guys. we have so much to get to. And once again, we thank you. And we'll see you next time. Bye, guys. 
If you're enjoying our show, please give us a glowing review on Apple Podcasts and share the show on social media. And if you're able to support us, you can subscribe at patreon.com slash they coined it. We've got some extra content there for you. We love hearing from our listeners. You can send your thoughts or questions to questions at tcimadmenpod.com or check in with us on Twitter and Instagram at tcimadmenpod. We're just at the beginning. We can't wait to discuss more Mad Men with you and continue bringing in special guests. Thank you so much, and we'll see you on the next episode.